Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And thank you again for joining me here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Adelberg, and this is Episode 6. That big, awesome voice you just heard right there, that is Mitch Phillips. Check him out at mpvoice.com. Great friend of the show. Makes this whole thing look even better than it really is. I spent this past weekend on the golf course, both Saturday and Sunday. Didn't hit one shot, but I probably had just as much fun as if I was actually playing. I spent this weekend caddying for a friend's niece at the Hurricane Junior Golf Tour event here in South Florida. Now, there's plenty of great Grow the Game initiatives out there. There's the First Tee. There's the PGA Junior Golf League. They're all great, but if you really want to help these kids out, go volunteer at a local junior golf event. Perhaps you can caddy or drive around and be a volunteer marshal. At the very least, you'll see some incredible golf. My player, Audrey Yim, had a nine-shot improvement from her first round to her second. She closed with eight consecutive pars. Do you remember the last time you made eight consecutive pars? Well, I don't. I think the only thing that made her happier than the score that she shot was when her sister gave her Reese's peanut butter cups on the 14th hole on the last round. So, hey, there's junior golf for you. So for everyone listening, if there's a junior golf program in your area, volunteer your time and let's help grow the game for the kids. Since many junior golfers will eventually compete at the high school level and then attempt to play collegiately, seems like the perfect time to introduce this week's guest. But before we do, let's get some podcast business out of the way. As you know, we are in Apple Podcast. You can subscribe there. You can also find us on Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. Remember, we have a new episode each and every week, and it's going to be like that all year long. Also, we are on Instagram, so when you're out hitting balls or practicing or playing, tag us and let us know what you're up to. Finally, you can reach me via email at ben at thebackoftherange.com, always open to suggestions that'll make the podcast even better. So, this week's guest is Ryan Jameson. He is the assistant coach of the men's team at Stanford University. Along with head coach Conrad Ray, Ryan will help lead the Cardinal as they look to add to their program's impressive history of eight national championships and 10 conference championships. Ryan played collegiately at DePaul University and has had immediate success as a golf coach. In fact, before joining the program at Stanford, he won a national championship with the Division II powerhouse Nova Southeastern University in 2015 and was also named the Division II Coach of the Year. I was able to catch up with Ryan right before New Year's when he was down in South Florida on a recruiting visit. We talked about his transition from Nova Southeastern to Stanford, what it's like to coach the former number one ranked amateur in the world, that would be Maverick McNeely, and yes, he was also able to share a couple stories about some pretty well-known Stanford golf alums that I'm sure everyone has heard of. So Ryan, thanks for joining me here at the back of the range. How you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, man. I'm glad we make this work out. Glad we could uh, find some time. Um, you're you're in South Florida right now. I believe you're doing some recruiting. What uh, what brings you into town uh, away from uh, away from California? Well, you know, obviously, you know, being down here in South Florida this time of year, you know, there's some great. It's kind of a hotbed for junior golf this time of year, and just just being able to come down here and spend a few days and recruit some of the the top talent in the uh in the south florida area it's been been great um 
we're working on our, our classes coming up here in the 2019, 2020 classes. So good basically to get down here and get a jump start on the, uh, 2019, 20, uh, class. Okay. So are you just like visiting, visiting kids or are you here for like some sort of an event? What, what, what actually brings you explain to me what exactly you're doing on a recruiting trip and how's that, how that normally works. In this instance, we actually have it's it's kind of ironic. There there's three different events that are going on at the same time, basically all within 30 miles. So you have the South Beach International Amateur, you have the Doral uh, Publix, and then you have the Dixie Am too as well. I'm not going to be recruiting at the Dixie, but the uh, the South Beach and the uh, and the Doral, I'll spend a few days at um, being down here and just trying to really narrow down those 2019 uh, 19 classes. And the cool thing about these events, you know, where you know, in the past, they've well, the South Beach has really only been around for six years and the Miami Doral has been around for a little bit longer. But the cool thing about it is all these international um, schools from, you know, international teams like Sweden and, and some other international teams, they'll come down to uh, South Florida this time of year. And it's just a, a great way for coaches to see um, a lot of young talent and kind of evaluate them and see um, if they are potential fits on their on their golf teams. Now, now, obviously, you have to do your due diligence. So not only do you have to look at these kids on the golf course uh, during the day, but to be on the safe side, you probably have to hit some of the clubs in South Beach just to make sure these kids aren't there. Now, you, it's not for you. This is not about you, but you want to go into these clubs and make sure there's no kids there, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I've hit up a good 35 so far this week, so I'm trying to make sure that uh, – they're not in there, but I, I think a lot of these kids, I think they're doing really well with, um, you know, committing to the golf and they understand that this is a big week for them and, and their futures. And, uh, I think that a lot of these kids are going to do what they need to do to get done and, um, you know, have a little fun along the way, probably hit up the beach, maybe, maybe grab a couple waves, but, uh, all in all they're, they're, they're there to play golf. And, you know, I think that kids these days are definitely, um, definitely in tune with that. Sure. So let's kind of uh, dial it back to the beginning of how you got into the game of golf. You were you were definitely a uh, outstanding player at DePaul University. Before you got to DePaul, tell me how you got into the game of golf. I would say I started right around the age of nine or ten. I remember um, visiting my dad in in the summers in North Carolina, and my dad and my grandfather would actually go to the golf course um, and then come back like four or five hours later and I was just, you know, bored out of my mind and I just wondered what they basically did during this time. So, you know, I would I would kind of needle my dad and try to say, Hey, you know, you gotta take me, you know, you're not you're not hanging out with me. This is not fair. Like come guilt all trip. this way. Yeah, guilt and, trip. Yeah. Total guilt trip. Total guilt trip. And uh, you know, finally I got him to take me to this golf course um in Charlotte and uh, you know, I had a blast with it. I, I can't say how good I was, but I I definitely remember uh, my grandfather and my dad thinking, you know, hey, this kid actually is pretty decent for just, you know, picking up, picking up the golf clubs and going. So, um, you know, after that, you know, I kind of just fell in love with the game. And I think more than anything, it was a way for me to get a little bit closer with my dad. And, um, you know, that was pretty exciting for me for to be able to hang out with my dad and my grandpa, because there was always two guys that I kind of looked up to and, and, and tried to emulate and, uh, you know, to hang out with them in Charlotte in the summers and to have you know, no school or anything like that kind of um, to do at the time. You know, I, I was definitely bored. So to play golf, it was a pretty fun experience. Awesome. Well, that's a great way to get into the game, especially connecting with uh, your father and your, and your grandfather. When did it really kind of turn for you more so not just um, 
you know, a kind kind of an activity with your with your father. When did it kind of transition into wow, I'm 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 starting to get pretty good at this. Um, I may want to take this a little bit more seriously. I think a big thing, honestly, for me was um, was the summers. My dad actually moved to Chicago probably three or four years later. And uh, he, he lived downtown Chicago and it's not there anymore, but they had what was called this family golf centers. And they had basically this nine hole par, par three designed by Pete Dye, I believe. And the ninth hole was an Island green. And there was a 330 yard range. It was front, front and back it was a great practice facility. And my dad, um, I, again, I would go visit my dad in the summer. So he, he belonged to this golf course. And, uh, you know, I would literally just hang out there every day. Like he would go work, you know, he would obviously join me after work, but like I would go there during the day and I would, and I even worked there. Um, cause I just really, really enjoyed kind of hanging out there. And I think, you know, spending a couple summers there and, and, and started to compete in some, some Illinois junior golf association events at the time. And then competing in some stuff where my dad competed as a kid. Cause he, he grew up in uh, Northwest Indiana and there were some junior events that he would play as a kid. So he's like, Hey, why don't you go try, try to play in this? You know, I won this back when you were, you know, <laughs> before you were born, you should, you should try and play in this and see if you can win this. And I remember winning a couple of those events. And that was, that was probably the case where I really, Hey, you know, Hey, I, I might be pretty good at this. And that's kind of what led me to, to, to try out obviously for the high school golf team and you know that and I was a second string quarterback and uh for the football team in, in middle school and you know I dropped back a couple times and it didn't work out too well so I just decided <laughs> that football probably wasn't the best uh best best route for me being 5'11 and and can't throw the ball more than 40 yards <laughs> it's really it's interesting because a lot of our our previous guests on the podcast it's a common theme it's I played football realized I was probably too small to continue that much further let me kind of focus on my golf yeah and 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 I think it's a very humbling experience when you're you're playing football with guys that are just far more athletic than you are and yeah you just you just know you know pretty quick don't you I mean there's that yeah that's that time where you're just like okay I'm not yeah they're just they're bigger than me and I'm just not gonna be able to compete with this yeah, and I was a very naive kid, too, because, you know, I thought I was, like, just super athletic, like Mr. All Sports, and I could play anything. And then, you know, I, I think after riding the bench for, for, for four or five games, I kind of realized that maybe, like, my intent on how good I was was probably not exactly up to speed. So I just kind of tried to pull a 180. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, so, well, but you found your, your calling, found your, your athletic outlet in golf and and played well in high school and found yourself at DePaul, which I mean, D one school, um, you know, tell me a little bit about your experience playing for them and, uh, what you picked up playing college golf. More than anything, I think I learned, you know, really grew up during that experience. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, you get introduced to in college with, beer. you know, there's, there's more access to beer and, and all that stuff that kind of goes on with college life. And, uh, you know, trying to be disciplined about those things. And I would definitely say that I was probably, um, you know, I, I was pretty disciplined during my time there. I, I really, really enjoyed being at DePaul. It was a, a top 25 uh, business school. So, you know, that was that was very interesting to me because I wanted to get my business degree. You know, my father got his um, business degree too as well. So I wanted to kind of follow in his footsteps. And then also, you know, Betty Kaufman, who was, uh, she just ret- retired basically this last year. She was a you know, amazing uh, mentor for me. And, and she gave me a chance. And, you know, I knew every year that I was going to compete in the Conference USA. And we had schools like TCU and Houston and uh, 
uh, UAB, UAB with the Graham McDowell at the time. So a lot of great uh, college players that were playing at these programs. And, you know, I hadn't done as much as these guys have done in, in high school. So, you know, it was my way to kind of get into that, um, get into those fields and, and mix it up with those guys and kind of see if I could hang. Sure. So you mentioned uh, mixing it up with some uh, some guys at the other schools in your conference. Give me one guy that you just saw that obviously has moved on uh, to higher ranks that when you saw them in college, you're like, yep, that guy's going to be moving on further than this. Yeah, no, I, I think at the time for sure it would have been Graham McDowell at UAB. I remember playing in the – I was a freshman playing in the conference championship. It was somewhere in Pensacola, Florida. And I, I think after that year, he actually turned pro. And I think he won within the first couple of years, too, as well as a PGA Tour player. But I just remember seeing him on the range with a, uh, you know, he had a white T-shirt on, I think, and didn't have on, you know, a, a traditional polo or anything like that. And I just remember looking at him and thinking, man, this guy's got some swag. He'll probably make it. So, um, you know, he he's had a pretty good career so far. And it was kind of cool to be able to mix it up in some tournaments with him and against him and and he definitely got the best of me every time he played <laughs> well she did that i'm sure he did that to a lot of a lot of players um so you you were the team captain at depaul you picked up a win at the midwest amateur so you had a solid four-year career with depaul um did that immediately move you into coaching or give me a little bit about the timeline of how you started getting that into your head about hey i might want to be a coach well, I, I, first of all, I knew that I wasn't going to play professional golf. I knew I didn't have that level. My, my whole thing was, you know, I think you have to be able to win at every level. You know, I won at the, Absolutely. I won at the, I won at the high school level, but I didn't really compete or win at the college level enough to where really feel like I can warrant, you know, myself basically turning professional. So, you know, from there, basically what I said is, you know, I, I don't really know what I want to do now, but, um, you know, I, I, I had an opportunity to basically tour. This is a kind of funny story. I actually had an opportunity to tour the country um, for a company called Marketing Works, which is kind of down the line of my major in marketing business. And uh, so I, I took that opportunity. So I basically uh, hopped in a Hummer and, and traveled to different sporting events and concerts nice. across the country and spent six months doing that and kind of just really figuring out you know, what I really, really wanted to do. Kind of like the American equivalent of backpacking through Europe, it sounds like. Yeah, it was kind of a six month way to to kind of figure out what I wanted to do, but also at the same time get paid for it. You know, that six months out there was really great for me because it made me realize that, hey, I really enjoyed, you know, kind of my time playing college golf. And I remember actually where I was when I had my first, um, you know, my first response. I, I sent some stuff over to Nova Southeastern for the assistant coaching position that was basically opening up. And uh, I got an email back and uh, I remember I was in Furman, South Carolina. They had a web.com tour event. That was the BMW program that we were probably doing some um, mobile marketing at. Yeah. And uh, I remember talking to, to Kevin Marsh and, and uh, he was like, yeah, why don't you come down and interview for this? And, you know, lo and behold, I, I, I went down there probably about a month later, uh, interviewed for the job and I got the job and it was the first job I ever applied for. And, uh, you know, that definitely kind of started me off on my path of, of college coaching. And just just thinking about that whole thing is like literally an, an example of being in the right place at the right time. Sure. And this is uh, just to clarify for our listeners so that you were a four year, uh, you were an assistant for four years underneath Kevin Marsh at Nova Southeastern, a D2 school in Davie, Florida. Yeah, D2, South Florida, Davie, Florida, and um, Nova Southeastern just purchased, I, I guess, about a year 
prior to me arriving, purchased Grand Oaks Golf Club, which was actually the uh, golf course that was used for filming in the Caddyshack. So to me, looking at a place to coach and all these things kind of in front of me, it seemed pretty cool. And, uh, you know, it just really worked out just to be down in South Florida. I wanted to be green, you know, be on green grass year round. You know, that was something that was pretty pretty major for me and then the fact that my grandfather lived 30 miles north in Boca was just kind of a home run Oh, because I've always been pretty close to family and and uh, you know having somebody close you know where I can go on the weekends and hang out and things like that was was definitely a big plus for me well I'd imagine being family oriented helps you relate better to your players not just at Nova but you know on up the ladder as you've gone to Stanford so it seems like that's a pretty common theme with people that I've spoken to in your profession, big time family first kind of people. And that bleeds over into you know, looking after your players and getting their respect and, and developing a bond. Yeah. I mean, I think all, I think coaching, a big part of coaching is relationships. And if you have relationships, quality relationships with your players, I think that they're going to go to bat for you. They're going to, they're going to play hard for you. They're going to, they're going to listen to you. They're going to respect you. They're going to do the things that, you know, you tell them to do most of the time and, and, uh, you know, and they're going to, you know, and if not, they're going to, they're going to talk to you like men and they're going to work it out and, and you're going to find something, um, that kind of works out for everyone. And, and that's probably in most cases the right way to go. And, uh, you know, I've always been big on relationships. I've always been big on listening, asking a lot of questions. I think that's very important. Um, I think the players today are just different. Um, you have to spend, you have to spend more time kind of asking questions to find out kind of what it's like for them kind of living, you know, and, and really coming up in a different era. Um, you know, I think, I think back to the kind of my coaching, like early on in my life and it's all been, it was very, um, you know, it was very in your face. It was very like controlling. It was, it was kind of that style of coaching. And I think today's players just don't respond as much to that um, overall. And, uh, you know, so I would definitely consider myself more of a player's coach, um, you know, and, and that doesn't mean I'm a, a pushover or you sure. know, walk over or anything like that. But um, I'm definitely trying to find out what kind of makes each guy tick and find out, you know, how to coach each guy. And, and most of the time it's it's different. Um, I think each player, you know, comes from a different background. And you have to find ways to, to kind of get the best out of them. And, you know, I think that that's worked pretty well for me, you know, throughout the years and, um you know, I, I would, I definitely think that's the way to go with today's kid. Sure. Sure. No, I couldn't, could not have said that better. I totally agree with you. These, these kids have just a different, um, social, uh, you know, socially they're different, emotionally they're different. They have a lot of different responsibilities and they're always, it seems like they're always engaged in a lot of different activities. So you have to be able to relate to them on their level. Um, you've done more than just coaching. So before we get into a little bit about the national championships at Nova and your new, relatively new position as an assistant at Stanford, um, you've had some other positions around golf. Most notably, you worked in some tournament ops for the Michael Jordan Celebrity Invitational and uh, Nota Begay's uh, tournament for his foundation. How did that happen? And I'm sure you're going to have a couple stories about those experiences. Yeah, no, I think um, basically how it happened was from Kevin Marsh. So he was my boss at Nova Southeastern. He was the head coach there. And uh, after after I moved on from from Nova Southeastern, he had this opportunity to go work for this company called JPSC. And JPSC um, basically helped uh, put on these golf tournaments, put on the Michael Jordan Celebrity Invitational, put on the Nota Big A Foundation Challenge. And, uh, and Kevin was, um, you know, I was lucky enough to, 
for Kevin to bring me on at, at these tournaments and, you know, totally cool experiences. I remember, you know, we had a lot of fun at these tournaments. Uh, don't get me wrong. And we were, and we worked, we worked pretty hard too. I can remember some late nights. I can remember, uh, you know, missing a couple bells in the morning. Um, but, but overall it was a pretty fun experience, you know, hanging out with, with celebrity athletes and celebrity actors and, um, just seeing kind of how, you know, how they interact was a really, really cool experience for me. Well, you don't um, seem very nervous talking to me. So obviously you've, you've learned to deal with it a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I definitely think I've learned, um, learned to deal with it a little bit better, but you know, you're definitely, I, I don't, I don't really consider you on the, on the par of Michael Jordan, what? but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, All right. Well, We'll, we'll keep the episode going then. Uh, I'll do better. I'll try. Um, so, so give me a good Jordan story. You know, we've all heard about the, was it like a half dozen cigars a day and he's playing 36. Yeah. Um, you know, give, give me just, give me one just for, from Jordan. And actually I want one from Nota Begay also. Yeah. So Jordan, Jordan, I would say a big, a big thing. And I'm sure a lot of people hear this, but like the way he goes is basically he'll play golf with about 20 people in a group and they'll all have kind of their own golf cart. And, okay. uh, and, and the joke is with him is like his golf cart always goes faster. Oh, so he'll have the really? 45 mile an hour golf cart that I can't even name the company that's probably made by. And he obviously has, Ferrari. you know, I think it's Ferrari who makes that. one. Yeah, it's, it's probably a Ferrari because the thing, the thing just absolutely moves. But there's always something, you know, there's always something that he's gambling on. I mean, I, I would definitely say that. Um, I, I think he'd probably tell you that. But um, yeah, it's just just really fun to be around those guys. I remember being at the, the MJCI and, and having, um, you know, having. Having him having, you know, it looks like they've had some sort of bets with um, whether or not one of his uh, one of his, uh, his friends would basically jump in the water at the 18th hole of the MJCI. And you could tell they definitely had some money on it. And, oh you know, before before I, I can even look back, like this guy's jumping in the water on 18 at Shadow Creek. And you can tell he cuts out of the water and he just throws up his fingers like waving like the money sign, like pay me. Oh, <laughs> so that that was a pretty cool experience to kind of see how he interacts with his uh, with everyone. I, I I know he really, really enjoys golf. And I think everybody that, you know, I've ever talked to, you know, when he plays, he plays, you know, 36, 54 holes a day. And, um, you know, he plays about as fast as you can think. And uh, is he more of needing shots from other players and winning that way? Or is he I know he's incredibly competitive. Uh, yeah. But is he able to kind of go toe to toe and play some really excellent golf and kind of take it low? Or is he kind of at some sort of level and then there's always just some some strokes and some some. Uh, as far as I know, like, I think he's always been pretty much a four handicap. And I, I, I'm sure there's a lot of guys that would tell you that that's, you know, maybe a little bit better or maybe a little bit worse and he's hot dogging a little bit. So I think he's always played to a four handicap. And I think when he's playing a little bit better, he's still playing to that four handicap. So he definitely has a little bit of advantage when he's playing a lot of golf. Gotcha. Um, so because he, he's he, playing to a four. So he has, he has game. It's not all about just the, the juice and the action, the side bets. He, he's, he's out there. He has game. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I don't know from first-hand experience, but I would say his whole game, at least playing when he's gambling is, is he's going to get in your head. You know, he's going to nice. try to figure out ways to beat you. He's just a competitive guy. Very cool. And, and working with, uh, with Nota Begay's foundation, um, 
I can't imagine the the experience there, just seeing what they do, the incredible work they do there. What lessons did you learn working for Nota Begay? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the whole thing with the Nota Begay Foundation Challenge was basically, you know, to benefit um, his foundation, which was, um, you know, helping out people in the uh, in the Native American community of, of New Mexico, I think close to close to his home. Um, you know, these kids that a lot of them struggle with childhood, ob- uh, obesity. So, um, you know, he's, he's very active, um, in the community and he's given these guys, you know, soccer fields and soccer balls and, and, um, access to golf and other things that these kids would normally have. And I think it's just a great, great thing that he's done for these kids. And, um, you know, the cool thing about the whole tournament is it brings back, um, you know, I, I don't think he's doing it anymore, but maybe he'll get back into it. But um, he would have basically four, four players from each side and they would have. Um, so you'd have the international squad and you have the American squad. And, uh, you know, every other year if Tiger was healthy, Tiger would come back and he would compete on, uh, on notice squad. And the coolest, you know, kind of ex- experience that I really had was listening to kind of Noda and Tiger, you know, take the stage. I think one of the gala nights, they would kind of tell some old stories, um, kind of about their experiences and, and, and everything. And, and a lot of times it had to do with some Stanford stuff. And that was, that was pretty cool to kind of, uh, to listen to. I think one of the cool experiences are, that are one of the cool stories that, that they had was one time when, um, I guess Tiger Woods hit it over to the, uh, to the, to the other fairway. So he was playing a hole. He hit it right of his intended fairway and Noda sees him over there pacing it off. And so he's, he's walking from, I guess the, the 150 played on the hole that he should have been playing um, to basically his ball on the other hole. And, uh, and so he, he basically walks from the 150 play to his ball on the other fairway and he calculates the yardage. And then he obviously knows what the, the yardage was from the 150 yard uh, plate in the hole that he should have been in. And Noda's looking at him. He's like, what, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm using the Pythagorean theorem to calculate my yardage to the hole. <laughs> so I always thought that was kind of cool that that's the way kind of tiger thought. And, uh, you know, it's interesting and it's probably correct too. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's hard to, it's I mean, hard to beat math, Yeah, that's <laughs> but it's pretty, pretty, much it. pretty, pretty, pretty obvious thing. But, uh, I thought it was a pretty cool story that, you know, yeah, I that's, think that's, that's kinda, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's ninth grade geometry. We might need to, uh, double check brush that. up on that. A yeah. I might yeah. need to yeah, get, let's get Noda a book on that. But, uh, yeah, I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty sure that's, that's what that is. Um, you mentioned tiger trying to calculate yardages. You actually were present and firsthand for one of the most famous shots of Tiger Woods career. Um, what can you tell me about the 03 U.S. Open? Well, you know, I, I only worked a couple days there, but it was definitely a really cool experience. So, I, you know, I had never been to a major championship before, so it was really cool and neat to get the opportunity from ESPN. Um, there was a guy, I think his name was Mo Davenport, that had a, a obviously knew my, uh, my, my golf coach. So, he was looking for a few interns for the, you know, for some help that week, probably mainly just kind of running people around. I think we, we would run Chris Berman. I think Scott Van Pelt was at ESPN at the time. We would give them rides to like their different um, meetings because the compound was basically um, on the side of, I think the fifth hole and uh, you know, their the uh, main ESPN um, set, if you will, was behind the, uh, the putting green. So we would kind of, run these uh sportcasters back and forth so that was kind of cool to kind of you know if nothing more than be be valet service that was kind of cool to see these guys in action yeah as a college um, kid and, you're seeing these guys you see on tv i mean that's that's got to be awesome i mean were there how was there were they pretty good to, to relate to they take the time to talk to you 
Yeah, definitely. I, I probably couldn't remember too much of what they actually even said. I just probably was, you know, obviously so enamored with the fact that they were on TV and that they did this for a living and talked about golf for a living. Yeah, I thought that was incredibly cool. But, um, you know, I remember one other um, one other thing is like I, I don't remember how I got it, but I basically got one, access to one of those black um, media armbands. And I wore one of those black media armbands like in the ropes. And I remember I remember watching um, Tiger Woods in the ropes on Saturday of that U.S. Open. And I don't know if, you know, the listeners will recall this, but um, he hit this shot on a par five. I believe it was on the back nine um, or no, it wasn't. It was it was hole seven at the Olympia Fields 2003 U.S. Open. He hit this shot, this cutting three wood around the trees that was just absolutely incredible and i was actually inside the ropes for that shot so that was a pretty cool experience to see and and uh, probably one of the best golf shots i've ever seen i mean he he he, he cut the ball probably i guess it wouldn't be cut it'd be a slice but he uh he, he sliced the ball probably a good 60 70 yards around this tree and put it on the green which is probably 260 away from the hole which probably cut you know if it cuts 60 and goes 260 i mean you can do the math that's a pretty t- difficult shot to hit so and were you close enough to to kind of hear the the dissertation and the the back and forth between him and Steve Williams? No, definitely wasn't close enough to hear that. But I'm sure it was basically Steve Williams telling him, "Hey, you should probably lay up," and then <laughs> and then probably realizing, "Oh wait, you're Tiger Woods. I'll probably just let you go ahead and hit the shot." <laughs> and probably a good call on Steve's part. Awesome. Well, that's a that's a great story. So your career at um, your career at Nova Southeastern as as the full time coach, you have a national championship in 2015. How how do you change the culture? How do you get these kids to believe that they are going to be in that position and to chase down a national championship? I think it was um, a lot of it was instilled um, by Kevin Marsh. Being with Kevin Marsh, all the recruits that kind of come in you know, they've had wins in tournaments. They've competed with some of the most dominant teams in division two. As these players got recruited and came in and, and half the guys I recruited and half of them, I didn't. And they were, you know, from Kevin's era or Garrett's era. Um, they were all super talented. And, uh, you know, all we did every day was work really, really hard. You know, when they go to practice, we would, you know, use TrackMan to calculate yardages, um, try to get as much out of the tech technical aspect as we could and I think every tournament that we showed up at you know we expected to win and I remember winning some tournaments I I really do remember this I remember winning some tournaments by a few shots and thinking man we just you know we just not did not play well this week and that was kind of the difference with this group is that they could play you know kind of average golf or maybe even slightly below average and I'm not saying that is, is the case every week but there were definitely some tournaments where I felt that they didn't play up to their standards and they still won. And, um, you know, we had some rounds like that, at the national championship. I don't even know that we had the one seat. I think we had the two seat. Um, and the funny thing is when we won the national championship, I think the two seat had won every year. So, you know, me being a superstitious guy, I'm like, Oh, this is great. You know, two seats won every year. We're the two seed. Um, this is our year. So, um, lucky enough, we, uh, luckily enough, we, we, we got to the uh, the final match, and it, it came down to, uh, to probably one of the most nerve-wracking uh, shots of my, my life ever. Um, so basically, to set the stage for you, you know, it was kind of back and forth all day. I think we were down early. Um, we were probably down like maybe 3-1-1, one, and one, which, you know, down in three matches, tied in one match, up in one match. And a big, 
a big thing that's kind of swung the matches when the eighth hole, I think one of the guys from Lynn maybe put in the water and kind of Santiago Gomez's match. He was maybe two or three down at the time. All of a sudden, he he ties it up or maybe goes up one. And uh, you and know, just I'm to, thinking, hey. and just to clarify, not to cut you off, but just to clarify, so this is the finals. It's the exact same format as Division One. It's five players against five players, match yep. play, and it's either win, loss, or you know, yeah. Get well, actually, point. the diff the one difference in Division Two and Division One is the fact that we play medal match play at the time. So it was like a 72 beats a 74. And then the only way that the score differential actually matters is if you tie two and a half to two and a half, and then they, they come down to strokes. So to set, you know, to set the stage that way, basically on that eighth hole was huge because now all of a sudden we went from down two and three to match to tied or maybe even up one. I can't remember what it was. And, uh, you know, he goes, actually, I think we won the first, uh, I think we won the first two points and we were actually getting beat in our, let's see, the, we won the first two points. Um, and, uh, I think that third match we lost. So we're down now we're up two one, right. And that fifth match, I think we're getting beat pretty good. I think we're getting beat probably four or five. So it's coming down to this, this, this fourth match, which was that Santi Santiago Gomez, uh, Jose Miranda match, which that I was telling that story on eighth hole, that was that match. So that match basically came to the 18th hole, and I think Santiago was, uh, I think Santiago was one up going into the 18th hole, and uh, he he bombs a drive down there, hits a great drive down there, and uh, you know if if we tie this match, we lose because we're gonna lose. It's gonna be two and a half, two and a half. And we're going to lose on shots because those other matches, they, they had won by more than that. We beat them in the matches that we won. So it's basically coming down to the last hole. Santiago hits a great drive. And so he goes to the green, hits a two iron, just absolutely flush. And it's just right off the front part of the green. Probably a, it's a basic chip. It's probably a 40, maybe a 50 foot chip just right up the slope. But under the circumstances, probably pretty tough. The other kid hits a driver down the fairway lays up to like 70 yards and I'm I'm not joking you in my head I'm like this kid's gonna make it like he's just he's got a great wedge game he's gonna make it he leaves the thing literally an inch from the hole for an eagle oh. um almost makes it makes birdie so now Santiago's off the front of the green 40 40 50 feet from the pin he's got to get this up and down to win a national championship if he doesn't get it up and down we lose because all of a sudden if he you know if he makes a par we lose the hole, tie the match, goes to shots, we lose the national championship. So long story short, he hits it to about two feet, makes the putt, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. There you go. There you go. Well, that's a great way to win a national championship. Uh, yeah, it was. It was the most nerve-wracking experience of my life, probably, <laughs> to have kind of the anxiety about the whole situation and being able to come up on top. It's it was just a really cool experience. Awesome. Well, you also uh, picked up the uh, Dave Williams National Coach of the Year Award in 2015, and uh, you just mentioned Santiago Gomez uh, closing it out for you. He was he won the Division Two Jack Nicklaus uh, Player of the Year Award. So uh, just a dream season all around for 2015 uh, for for Nova Southeastern. Uh, can you tell me who is the player that you've had that you had at Nova Southeastern that got the most out of his talent? Most out of his talent. Um, Maybe not the best player, but who really? Yeah, I would probably say it would probably be uh, Ethan Marcus. He actually transferred and, and, and went on to Arizona, but um, just a very, very consistent kid. Um, you know, hit a lot of fairways, hit a lot of greens. And, um, 
you know, the, the days and, and weeks that he could putt pretty well, you know, he would he'd kind of hang around the lead. And um, to me, he was that one guy that was kind of, um, you know, that guy that kind of really put us over the top because, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, if you have the one player, you're going to be a pretty good team. And I agree with that. Like having that, that number one guy is a, is a pretty solid advantage. But to me, where you can really make up some shots is having that differential in that fifth and fourth guy. Gotcha. Awesome. You cap off a great 2015 season at Nova Southeastern, and the opportunity comes for you to move on to Stanford. So this is a huge jump. Not just We're not just talking a D2 to D1. We're talking about Stanford. So how did that come about? And walk me through the process of, of getting to be the assistant at Stanford for the men's program. Yeah, so I, I, I remember being in the position where I'm thinking, okay, you know, how am I going to become a, you know, a, a power five head coach, you know, at the D1 level and, you know, still trying to figure that out to, the, to, to today. And, uh, you know, there's, there were a couple opportunities that came along at some mid-major schools where, you know, uh, it just wasn't the right fit. And I didn't really want to go anywhere where I felt like, you know, I would, ha- I wouldn't have the resources really where I felt like we needed to be successful. I always felt really blessed to be at Nova and have great resources and, uh, you know, the, the, the tools that we basically needed to be successful. And, uh, so thinking about, okay, where am I going to go as a head coach that, that I can further my career and, and be in a position to be a power five head coach, you know, basically the assumption that I came to was, you know, it's probably going to be the assistant coaching route at the division one level. And, you know, if it's a top five, top 10 program, that's going to be kind of the icing on the cake. So, you know, I kind of waited a few years, basically looking for that opportunity to come up. And then when Stanford came up, um, you know, I, I just wanted to do whatever I could to basically get in that, to get in the picture of getting an interview. And, um, you know, I've heard great things, obviously, at the time about Conrad Ray, who's my boss. And, um, you know, I, I just started making phone calls. And actually, uh, one of the first phone calls I made was um, a buddy of mine, uh, Dave Pizzino, who's the the the, the coach at UConn who, yeah, I believe you've interviewed. Um, and he was one of the guys that was very instrumental in, in kind of helping me out and, and putting me in touch with Conrad. And, um, you know, I, I was so, you know, I, I, I just really wanted to be at Stanford and I really wanted to work with Conrad. I thought that would give me some great experience and, and it has um, given me some great experience and to work with players like uh, Maverick McNeely and Brandon Wu and, you know, some of the top amateur players in the world. It's, and to work under Conrad, who just actually went into the Hall of Fame um, this past coaches convention this past uh, actually a week ago, um, you know, was is has been a great experience for me. And, um, you know, one that it's going to be really, really hard to uh, to leave from if that uh, opportunity does come up. But I, I definitely think, uh, you know, I'm definitely very grateful for, for the time I've had thus far at Stanford and, and can't continue to or can't wait to continue to kind of keep on kind of helping pushing the envelope and kind of fill in the blanks wherever I can and hopefully get these kids to, uh, to the national championship and, um, you know, have a chance to, you know, the final, the final days to, uh, to be in a match. And hopefully some of the experience from Nova will, will, will come to fruition. So biggest, uh, and, and that's great that you're, that you're there and, and just so thrilled about that opportunity. What's the biggest difference between D2 college golf and D1 college golf. Is there, well, think, is there a difference? I mean, from not well, just the I, coaching, I, not just the coaching, um, yeah. the kids, just the whole 
picture like what's really just jumped out at you and said wow this is a different i'm in a different place right now well i think that i think the main thing is the funding so at the at the real big schools i think there's probably they're probably a little bit better funding i I think that's something i could probably say um so definitely the funding the kind of the resources are a little bit different um you know the the players i think there's some really good players at all levels i've always thought this you know the years that we that you know the years that we've competed in the national championship at the d2 level i always thought that these kids that were on my team could compete and and play highly up in the lineup on some really good d1 schools but i think the main thing is the depth and the number one players are probably a little bit stronger across the board i think that's probably probably pretty fair to say i mean the Maverick McNeely's of the world, um, the Justin Suss of the world, the Brandon Woos of the world, those those players that, you know, are playing pretty well this year, you know, in Maverick's case going on and, and qualifying for the web.com tour um, in 20, uh, 2018, you know, those players are just, you know, they're, they're, you know, a lot of them are more experienced in the junior circuit and have come on to college golf and they've, they've produced and, and because of what they've done in the junior circle, they probably had a little bit better opportunities at the division one level. And uh, I, I think a lot of these D2 players um, that, that, that played probably didn't have as much experience at the junior level. Um, so maybe a little bit late to the party, but I don't think that there's, you know, a ton of a talent differential nonetheless. Um, and some of these kids just maybe a little bit more late bloomers. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. What, um, so you mentioned Ma- Maverick McNeely just recently turned pro has his web.com status when it's, it's pretty well documented that he was kind of weighing the uh, options that he has, whether it's in the business world or whether he would pursue that and remain amateur or turn professional, which he inevitably did. Um, what is the support process? What is, what is that like for, for you and for, for your, for the head coach, Conrad Ray, what is the process where you have players that are contemplating turning pro what kind of support does a, a college provide? Well, we just try to ask them questions, honestly. You know, I think the best thing that we can do as a, as a college coach is not to make any assumptions about what a player wants. You know, just ask very poignant questions about, hey, you know, what are some of the options? Let's put all the options on the table. Let's put all the cards on the table. You know, I think the great thing about Maverick is that he really had a lot of things um, – going for him and he had a lot of options and uh you know he could kind of put all the cards on the table and say hey you know what what is what is best for me what is best for my family what is best for my future you know what do i feel like i i want to be spending my you know my career doing and um you know i think that's what's great about maverick is that he honestly you know took that decision to heart and um you know he realized that it was a big decision and he wasn't going to take it lightly and he was going to spend his time and uh you know i i think the great great thing about Maverick is he really enjoyed his experience at Stanford. He was a great teammate. He was a great leader. He worked very, very hard every day. Um, he's very, very disciplined. And, uh, you know, he was just, you know, he was just a great, you know, great college player and he really enjoyed his experience at Stanford. So he was going to, uh, to put that first, you know, he was a really, really good team player. What is a typical week for your team um, you know, let's, let's just assume you're, you're staying home, you're on campus, the, the, the kids are in school, you're not traveling to a new, to a tournament. Give me a, give me an idea what an average week looks like for the, for a golfer, for a player yeah, at Stanford. Absolutely. So we're pr- uh, typically going to practice a couple of times a week. So two, three times a week, and then we're going to play another two to three times. Um, if we're in season, 
uh, we'll work out for two times a week. Uh, for out of season, we might work out three times a week. There's obviously different restrictions on the NCAA on hours that we can spend in season, out of season. So in season, we have 20 hours with the school, with the team. So we'll, we'll, we'll you know, typically get right up to that number. Um, so, you know, Monday, we might have an off day. Tuesday, we'll have a workout in the morning. Kids will go to class. Um, they, they normally take classes from, we'll say, 8.30 to 12, 12.30. Um, they'll get a great lunch, head out to the golf course. Very, very interesting and cool thing about Stanford is that the golf course is actually a five-minute bike ride away from a lot of their classes. So they can go grab a lunch, grab a sandwich, take it to the golf course, eat it there, and then their locker rooms and their clubs are all out there. So they can be in the classroom at 12.30 and be out on the golf course hitting balls at 12.45, 1 o'clock. So. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing for them. Um, but we'll work out a couple times a week. We'll practice a couple times and we'll go play. We like to play a lot. I think uh, playing is very important. You know, that's where that's where tournaments are, you know, obviously played is, are on the golf course. So we try to have a good, healthy balance of, of playing and practicing. And when we are playing, we're, we're keeping things competitive. Um, a lot of times things kind of uh, they they kind of go around short games. So we'll spend time you know, with short game on the putting green track, man, doing some wedge yardages, some up and down contests, some, um, you know, seeing how close you can hit different shots, things like that, just to keep them competitive and keep the kids, uh, you know, having a, having a fun time at practice and feeling like really like they're getting something out of it. Which two, um, which, which two, uh, which two players on your team always seem to be going head to head in practice. Any epic battles that just really stuck out? I think we have a, that's the, the, the crazy thing about Stanford and, and um, you know, the thing that we really shouldn't take for granted is the fact that we have an incredibly deep team. I really feel like our team from top to bottom can all mix in the lineup. Um, you know, I, I think this year we've, we played four tournaments and I think we've had four separate lineups. So that's one of the things we kind of pride ourselves on or, is that everybody really can mix it up with everybody and every game that we ever put together or contest we put, put together, no matter how random the teams really are selected, they're always pretty close. And, uh, so your you know, qualifiers guys, are pretty intense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We qualified for every tournament this fall and they were always down to a shot. Wow. So uh, yeah, it, it's definitely intense and guys want to play and guys want to wear that S on their chest and they, they realize how important that is and, and realize how, um, you know, big a moment that is in their, their college coffin career. So every tournament is very, um, it's very important because, you know, before you know it, if you don't get in the lineup in the fall, you know, you're, you're like four tournaments down and like you could be missing a qualifier in the spring. And then, you you know, I think that that qualifying and that competition puts them in a better place so that they can go to these tournaments with these elite fields um, and, and play pretty well. And, uh, you know, we we have to be able to be at, be able to basically go to these tournaments and uh you know feel like we belong obviously and feel like we can compete and, and go out and win these tournaments because when it comes down to it in the national championship you got to be ready to go and there's nobody that's going to give you anything and you got to go earn it and uh you know I, I think that really you know this time of year in december and january is really where you can make some hay it's just spending some time on your game and kind of taking that next step and um you know, being able to hit the ground running in February. Um, getting back to Stanford. So a couple of questions I got to ask you too about that. Um, Stanford is not only a athletic powerhouse, you are an incredibly competitive and strong academic school. Um, you know, it's kind of the equivalent of, of Harvard on the West coast where sure. you have to be able to get the grades just to get into the school. Um, how challenging is that with your recruiting? I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely challenging. I mean, I think, I think the kids that we're, 
um, that we're going after are incredibly bright. They definitely are. And um, they're working their tails off in the classroom as well as on the golf course. And they really have the, uh, the horsepower to kind of get things done. And, you know, I, I, I forget what the exact numbers are, but I think right around 45,000 to 50,000 kids basically apply for Stanford every year. And I think last year the admit rate was under kids that basically matriculated were under 2000. So I think the admit rate is under 5%. I think it was like four and a half percent. So just to have that opportunity to be considered for that freshman class is a tremendous honor. And, uh, you know, the kids that we're recruiting, they definitely have to have the horsepower in the classroom to 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 be able to uh, to get in because, you know, we want them to translate into uh, academic success and and be able to have the horsepower to uh, to obviously get things done on the golf course, too, as well. And do you and do you ever have to? how do you ever have to get kids off the golf course to hit the books or are they just so self-driven that they just, they got it handled? Yeah. I think everybody that's at Stanford is pretty motivated, at least academically. Um, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's one of the things that we as coaches at Stanford should never take for granted is the fact that these kids are extremely motivated academically and they have some incredible stories they all have different backgrounds. They have some different likes um, you know, we have piano players, chess players, um, you know, they all have a, 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 a wide array of different uh, talents. Um, and it's always pretty interesting to kind of get to know these kids and kind of see them grow up because this is a huge part of their life. You know, this is the part of their life where they're figuring things out. They're trying to figure out, you know, what I want to do for a living is golf in my cards and, and trying to balance out all those things. Um, you know, that's one of the main reasons why it's been great to work with Conrad, because I think he's seen a lot of a lot of players come through during his time. Sure. Well, it's no secret that there are some incredible golfers that have come through Stanford and made their way to the pro ranks. Uh, you know, Nota Begay and, and Tom Watson and obviously Tiger Woods. Uh, so how much involvement and uh, interaction to these guys that have made it, that have made it on the PGA Tour, won tournaments, won majors. How much do they come back to Stanford to spend time with the with the the current players? I think they all do at different times. I mean, I think that that's a that's a cool part about our alumni group is that they're all incredibly invested in the uh, in the university, and they're they're definitely um, they're definitely guys that have a tremendous amount of pride about Stanford University and their time at Stanford and. Um, you know, even for them to come back, you know, maybe once a year is a huge opportunity for the guys if it, you know, if and when it happens. And, uh, you know, I think the coolest part about it is that the guys get to, you know, see them, ask questions, um, you know, kind of talk about some experiences. And, you know, that's just, you know, what other place do you get to really do that um, with some of the, the games elite that have won major championships? So give me a give me a good example of one of these guys coming back. I mean, are we talking about Tiger, are we talking about Noda, we talk, who, who are we talking about and, and how does that is I like do- I like the story of I like the story of Tom Watson, which actually wasn't even back at Stanford, but uh I believe Maverick told me this that um, you know, they're walking down um they're walking up to a tee box and, and it's uh, on the big island in Hawaii and um um when we go to that tournament basically we get to play this golf course called Nanea in uh in hawaii and that's one of the golf courses where tom watson um hangs out frequents he's a member um so he comes over and 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 meets the guys greets the guys and uh we're on uh they're on one of the tee boxes and i think the guys were kind of you know tempting him to hit a shot so he grabs somebody's golf club obviously not his golf club and uh you know hit just random driver 
pops it down the middle about 285 dead straight on a rope it's incredibly windy and all the guys are just like in awe and uh you could tell the guys didn't really want to say anything and then it was kind of quiet <laughs> and and supposedly the rumor has it that tom watson basically looks at him and goes what the hell do you guys expect i won five british open <laughs> so, <laughs> so i think that's a pretty cool pretty cool exchange between the guys and uh you know one of the famous alumni from our university but those are the type of things that are just really cool to uh, to experience and and definitely be a part of. Very cool. Uh, do you have a tiger story to share? The cool story for me, at least, was um, you know we're at the Nike Collegiate Invitational this year, and um, you know they're setting it up as basically you got Conrad Ray, who's former player at Stanford University, I think ninety four to ninety seven. You got Casey Martin, who was on Conrad's team. You got Nota Begay. Um, who was also on that team, and then you got Tiger Woods. So we're at the Nike Collegiate Invitational, which Nike puts on, and there's kind of like a discussion and kind of back and forth. They're talking about some old college stories from, you know, their legendary golf coach, Wally Goodwin, um, and it's Nota Begay up there, it's Casey Martin up there, and it's uh, and Conrad. And uh, I believe this guy named Cricket uh, was kind of moderating the, the discussion, and they're talking about, you know, Wally Goodwin and their experiences at Stanford and all that stuff. And then Noda comes up and he's basically like, so do you guys think Tiger Woods is going to come back? And they're all like talking and and Noda's like, hey, what do you guys think up there in the crowd? So it's a crowd full of uh, collegiate golfers, all Nike, um, Nike schools across the country. And uh, Noda gets on the mic. He's like, oh, why don't we just call him? So he puts uh, he puts Noda Begay or sorry, he puts he calls Tiger Woods and he puts his phone up to the microphone. He's like, uh, Hey Tiger, I'm just standing or actually Tiger first answers the call. And he's like, what do you want? <laughs> and so <laughs> that's okay. That's awesome. Cause that's exactly how I, if I had to guess how Tiger Woods would answer the phone when Nota Begay calls, I, that's exactly how it, I would imagine that would go. Yeah. So that's exactly how it went. And Nota Begay is like, so we're here at the Nike collegiate invitational, you know, we're here with some great college golfers and, we just wanted to know, like, uh, do you think that you'll be coming back? And then right when he said, like, the last thing, like, coming back, you look up to the back of the crowd, and Tiger Woods walks right into the room, and he sits down. And then it's basically an hour of them going back and forth, um, you know, kind of reliving some some college moments. I think the, co- the cool the – cool, <laughs> my cool story was just – is just hearing them kind of talk about their coach. And they all, like, had some incredible stories about their coach um, – during the time and uh you know wally goodwin a legendary legendary guy yeah um you know obviously coach tiger and some great players um you know it just it was just a great experience for him to come and 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 see the guys and i guess he came over from the president's cup the night before so that the the president's Cup team had just beat the international squad and him and noda flew over from where was it new jersey yeah got into nike um, came to this event and uh, Noda knew the whole time, but Conrad and Casey Martin had no idea that, oh, that Tiger Woods was coming. So it Tiger's was just kind prankster. of a really Tiger's a prankster. Yeah, yeah, total prankster. But it was probably one of the coolest experiences of my, experiences of my life. And I just remember seeing some of the faces on, um, you know, some of the guys that uh, you know obviously looked up and idolized this guy. And um, for him to take the time and, and come to talk to us was was pretty cool. Absolutely. And now, time for a quick bucket. So we um, we have a segment here on the Back of the Range Golf Podcast called The Quick Bucket. Um, I am going to ask you a couple random questions. 
and okay. uh, let me know if you can provide an answer to these. And you're going to try and I'm going to need you to try and be a little impartial here. This is going to be a tough one. Um, okay. Jack Nicholas, his victory at the Masters in 1986 at the age of 46, or the fifth green jacket of Tiger Woods, which would be the most substantial victory in your opinion? So the fifth green jacket has, has Tiger Woods has won four green jackets so, so far? So Tiger has won four. So yeah. um, how do you not know how many masters Tiger has? I'm pretty sure it was four. I just wanted to uh, make sure that <laughs> I'm right before I answer the question. But You're 100% fine. I would go with the Tiger Woods victory. I think that would be huge for the game. And obviously, um, you know, uh, taking into account some of the things that he's gone through, um, you know, I think that it would be a huge monumental victory. Yep, yep. <laughs> There's I, no denying that. Yep. Yep. No, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm on both sides. I'm, in, I'm impartial here as the host of the podcast. I've heard, uh, I've heard different answers for that same question, but it's always fascinating. And I don't, if you grew up in the tiger area, um, you're probably more apt to, to, to pick tiger. And if you, you're, you're a little older and you might have, you know, watched Jack Nicholas win that victory and, and, and you were big, uh, you know, golf fan during those times, you'd probably be a little bit uh, partial to uh, Jack Nicholas's victory. So I think that would probably be a question where I would say would sway, sway towards, you know, age specific. Very true. Very true. The second one I want to give you is you can give a major championship to anyone in history, male, female, alive or dead. They could have no majors or they could have 18 majors. Who are you giving a major to? Myself. <laughs> okay. All right. We're not gonna we're not gonna edit we're not gonna edit that out just since I have that on, on file. But let me clarify one more time. Um, has to be someone legitimate. Um, you know, I mean, not saying you're not, but you know, let's let's kind of keep things in perspective here. Okay. There is no Santa Claus. Um, oh shit. I got I, yeah, that I, that I do have to edit out. Um, so um, okay. Can't give one to yourself. I should have put that in there. Um, who would you like to give a major to? Um, it's, a spirit mm, of, it's, it's the season of giving. The season of giving. You know, I, I'll say this. I was a big uh, Ted Treba. Probably nobody on here knows. Holy Ted shit. Treba. Ted Treba. I was a, oh, I was a man. big Ted Treba fan coming, growing up. So if I could give a major to anybody, it would be a, uh, you know, I always enjoyed watching him and, and he probably didn't really even know I was watching him but like I was a big Ted Treba fan because we had the same coach growing up and uh you know I would give one to him because I always remember turning on that uh you know that ticker as a kid and seeing those scores uh, scroll across the bottom before internet was really big and and waiting to see kind of how he was uh progressing through the weekend and so I would probably give the major to him because um but I would but I would um what do you call it retroact it back to when back, I was back yeah, to yourself. Back, yeah back to yourself yeah, yeah back back to my high school self when uh when I was watching a lot more college or sorry a lot more professional golf man why I really hope Ted Treba listens to this episode because <laughs> he is wow that'll be great he's gonna be he's gonna be happy about that he's gonna be thrilled <laughs> um wow of course you know it's it's the second choice though after yourself so yeah um, yeah Wow. Well, Ryan, I really appreciate the time here at the back of the range. We will definitely keep uh, keep track of Stanford uh, throughout the year. Hope they make it to the national championship and uh, and best of luck to you uh, in the future. Yes. Awesome. Thanks for having me and uh, wish you an incredible amount of success with the show. And there you have it. Special thanks to Ryan Jamison, assistant coach of the Stanford Cardinal. And if you're scoring at home, that's six episodes. And in two of them, there's been a mention of Ted Treba. So didn't see that coming, but Ted, if you're listening, you're welcome to come on the show whenever you want. So we will see everyone next week. Don't forget, follow us on Instagram, 
And if you like this podcast and you have friends that might enjoy it also, please share it and leave a review. All right, we will see you next week at the back of the range.